Welcome to another episode of To Be More. This is TJ Smith, and we have to aim to be more because we know that there's a lot going on in Baltimore, but there's so many people trying to do more in Baltimore. And in order to be more, we have to look at those other opportunities that are out there. And one of them is the Turk House, opening the doors to recovery here in Baltimore. This is a big thing as we speak more and more about decriminalizing drugs, about not prosecuting low-level drug offenders. The Turk House is a nonprofit drug and alcohol treatment center that has been a pioneer in substance abuse treatment, caring for the most disadvantaged members of the greater Baltimore community for more than 50 years. Turk House's mission is to transform lives by providing help and hope for enduring recovery to individuals, families, and communities in Baltimore metropolitan area who are struggling with addiction to alcohol and or drugs. We know that that is a huge deal and a huge contributor to a lot of the issues that we have, whether it be from theft or all the way up to homicide. And of course, the family structure. We have a lot of children who are left to their own devices, whether it's out on the corner squeegeeing or whether it's grabbing a car, grabbing a gun and doing something to someone else, trying to make ends meet because they have a parent who's strung out on drugs or alcohol. But the Turk House is one of the organizations trying to do their part to help get those folks off of drugs and alcohol and get on a pathway to success. And today, I am pleased to be joined by the executive director of the Turk House, Mr. Bernard J.B. Foster. Mr. Foster, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, TJ, for having me. Yeah, so uh, Mr. Foster, you are a licensed clinical professional counselor, and you have become the executive director of the Turk House, and you've been in that role uh, for a number of years. Tell me a little bit about how you got into this work to provide this critical, critical uh, infrastructure for people who need it. So um, thank you once again for having me, TJ. So I'll keep it pithy on the, uh, on the, on the history here. But I've been doing this for, I think, 15 years now. Um, I, I, I myself come from a broken family mm-hmm. uh, with a single mother. Um, and the things that I experienced growing up, uh, mostly on the mental health side, from West Africa, by, uh, by, by as far as native next West African Ghana to be specific, uh, one of the challenges. The reason why I got into mental health specifically before, of course, veering off into the substance use behavioral health line, is because of my experiences, of course. Uh, and one of the things that growing up, you know, I witnessed was trauma and how to deal with it from the African context and, of course, from even the black context we don't deal with these things you know something happens to you deal with it i mean that was the sort of the mantra as of course my coming into the states being homeless twice myself uh you know i was i I think i did a double major in in college psychology and nursing right and i was more on the nursing track uh working in a hospital and what have you um and then of course just one one night i was working in the nursing um in the hospital it just dawned on me, but I, I guess, you know, an epiphany from God looked into my life, looked at, looked at some of the struggles that I had. And I said, you know what? I already have my psych degree. I need to go and just get into the mental health side. And so, of course, I received my master's in mental health. And then that st- 
started me on the trajectory of actually looking inwardly to myself and some of the struggles that I had coming up, not dealing with some of the issues related to trauma and what have you. And eventually, I fell in love with the behavioral health um, field to include mental health, substance use, and whatnot. And so that's really sort of the doorway for me in getting into this field. Yeah. And, 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 and let's be clear, you've mentioned it multiple times in that intro. The, and, and behavioral health captures a lot of it. Drug abuse, substance abuse, alcohol abuse, it's a mental health disorder. You, you see how we try to separate it. You see, right. you see how you mentioned drug abuse, right. substance abuse. Right. And really, essentially, in fact, Turk House is known years ago as a substance abuse or substance use. It's no, it's no longer substance abuse. Mm-hmm. It's now substance use treatment. But no, I mean, my, my role here now I've, is, is working with my team to transform that sort of aura that mm-hmm. is out there. Mm-hmm. Really, when you are dealing with a patient, you're dealing with a myriad of issues, not just substance use. There are triggers to people using. What right. are those triggers? That's one of the because things. Because they're trying to heal something. Exactly. There's something that exists exactly. that they're using the substance Exactly, to heal. exactly. Right. And you find out from us, from Turkhouse's standpoint, anytime we receive a patient, there's a myriad of things going mm-hmm. on. You have the mental health, which is causing a patient to use. Then once you are able to stabilize that, then you find out they have a lot of health-related somatic problems that you have to deal with as well. They haven't seen a PCP in a long time. Mm-hmm. They have diabetes. Their sugar level is high. They don't even know they have diabetes. Recently, we had the patient just like that. Mm-hmm. The patient was um, on, on the street corner, had been to our program before. One of our peers saw him. And say, look, you need to come in. And then the patient comes in, and we find out diabetes is there. Mm-hmm. And so you have all these challenges that is related to uh, uh, substance use that, you know, to the degree that many people, when they, see, they, do, they just hear substance use, and they just go with that. But it's a comprehensive uh, uh, approach to treatment that many of us need to start looking at. Somatic, substance use, mental health are all intertwined in, in, in a lot of the struggles that patients have in the city. And you mentioned PCP, uh, talking about primary care yep. physician and getting that uh, regular checkup, which everybody doesn't have the opportunity to mm-hmm. do. Um, you know, I've experienced this and seen it through my life as well. And I remember, um, you know, back in my uh, younger days hearing, you know, relapse as part of recovery. Yes. Is that still a mantra today? Yes. Because I think that's really important for people to understand. It is. Uh, Turk House, our philosophy is this. Uh, doors, opening doors to recovery. Mm-hmm. You, we, you can come in 20 times. One of, the, one of the things, one of my philosophies that, you know, my team and I, we always preach. Anytime a patient is before you, that may be the last time you see the patient. Mm-hmm. And so you want to make an impact. You don't want to force the patient to do anything they don't want to do. We are a patient-centered approach uh, to treatment. And so... Uh, 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 the challenges are there to the degree that a lot of patients will come in 20 times, but maybe on the 21st, it hits. It's just like cancer, relapse is part of it. If you if you go into the hospital, your cancer is in remission, and then it flares up again, you go to the hospital, they don't tell you, oh, they don't try to stigmatize you. Right. They just treat the condition. Right. And and I think for us at Turk House, that is what we do, and that's what we preach, and at least we need hopefully, uh, regulatory bodies, stakeholders, and all of that to understand substance use, addiction, 
mental health, what have you, it's a disease. And if you're going to treat the disease, you must look at the psyche, you must look at biology, you must look at the whole body, you know, to be able to, you know, really address what is really plaguing a lot of the patients that we see. Right, right. And and that is still the missing part, I yep. think. And I think part of it has to do with the legal versus illegal, um, you know, notion of it. And not necessarily the criminality of it, but the legal versus illegal. And people look at it as such a choice. But, right. you know, and I hate to dumb it down to this level, but caffeine's legal. <laughs> But it's also addictive. And if I go without drinking my coffee, I'm going to be sick. Nicotine. Nicotine. And you're going to be sick if you go without it. And the same thing translates into drugs and alcohol for people. You have to Uh, present an alternative. Right. It's not not enough to say, don't do this. Right. Don't do that. Okay. Right. For people who essentially uh, there's not any alternative or they haven't been presented with those things, Telling them alone does not is not going to cut it. It's presenting another philosophy, another view to life to the degree that, oh, wow, okay, maybe let me give this a try and see how this will shake out. Yeah. So Turk House opened its doors 52 years ago, 1970. Yep. Can you just give me a brief uh background history of the organization. You know, we talked a little bit about right now. Give me a little bit of the history of the organization. So Turk House, the name Turk, mm-hmm. come from, um, there was a psychiatrist, Dr. Isidore Turk, who actually worked with the state as well, saw a problem. There was, um, there was an issue with alcohol addiction, which, is what, which was more rampant and prevalent at that time. And of course, there were no uh, you know, state bodies and nobody knew how to deal with this. He just decided to roll up his sleeve and, mm-hmm. and, and offer help. And so that's what he did. He, he, you know, a lot of, of course, you know this, a lot of politicians talk, a lot of people talk a whole lot of game, but he decided, let me just address the issue. And that's how it started. And he did his pro bono uh, to the degree that, you know, we are where we are. And so he really is the brainchild behind Turk House. And that, that the name Turk comes from. His last name is it Turk. Well, nice. That, that's good to know. Um, but but he he became a doer. He, yep. he no no I, saw the yeah. need and did it. Yeah, I, I, and that and that's really our philosophy here at Turk is just that we are in the helping business. You know, let's do what our responsibilities are, which is help. So you guys at Turk serve underinsured and uninsured. And can you tell me a bit more about, you know, who you serve and how you make your services affordable for anybody? We serve everybody. Yeah. And how do you do that? How, how, how does that happen? I mean, so there's, of course, as you mentioned, there's, uh, there's the Medicaid component, okay. Medicare, and then there's the uninsured. Great. Of course, we are nonprofit. We have to find a way to stay afloat. And so we do do that. But that is not the driving force to what we do. People come for treatment. If they don't have insurance, mm-hmm. we take care of them. Our responsibility is to treat first, ask questions later. And so that's what we do. And so there, you know, usually about 15 to 20% of the patients that may come through may not necessarily have insurance. We work with our team to either get them insurance mm-hmm. or take care of them. And once a patient is with us, they are our responsibility. Mm-hmm. So if they come in without insurance, we don't say, oh, just leave. No. We treat them. Wow. That's very admirable and necessary. And yeah. it's 
actually sad in America that we are as rich as we are and we have people that are in that state still. Um, now, I've read that you guys serve approximately 300 people a day. Mm-hmm. 300 people per probably, day. Probably more. But yeah. I mean, that's, that is – it blew me away to hear such a number. How many would you say you serve a year? I mean, I can do the math, but 300 uh, so a let day, me, how many do you do a year? A little history will help. About mm-hmm. six years ago, we were only doing about 900 or 800 patients a year. Wow. Okay. Okay, so, of course, thanks be to God – I, I got into this role uh, as the executive director. We've expanded our capacity quite a bit. And so beginning the last two, three years, on average, between four and 5,000 people a year. Wow. That, that's, that's astronomical. Yeah. Now, I, I imagine some of these are repeat people. Of course. Um, but, I mean, that is, that's an astronomical number. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, th- I mean th- one of the questions we always want to answer is, what can we do to help our city? Mm-hmm. Okay, of course we have a site in Howard County, but predominantly we are represented in Baltimore City. Mm-hmm. And you know, I love my. I, let me just speak for me. I love Baltimore. Mm-hmm. I believe Baltimore is very beautiful. Of course, many people may not necessarily see it just because of a lot of the challenges we face. But Baltimore is beautiful, and our goal, my goal, our goal is not just to treat people. Okay. Yes, we can just, that's what our bread and butter is. But one of the things that we pride ourselves in is after treatment, then what? Mm-hmm. That's a big question. <laughs> right. Which that's is, a big question. On average, a lot of the patients we see are using drugs 15 years plus. Right. So if you think your little five days, six months, one year is going to change that, you are greatly mistaken. Because you're changing their life. Exactly. And, and, they, right. and, and back to your earlier point. Um, what is being introduced now to distract them exactly. from what has You, you always know, have to introduce, introduce a different stimuli to mm-hmm. get people to think a certain way. And so if you, th- you and I think we're going to just mm-hmm. address this issue, oh, you know, five days detox, withdrawal management, what have you, six days, 20, I don't care the days, even two years. So let's just look at the math. A person has been struggling with addiction for 15 years. And you want to do right. help him or her in what six months? Right. Doesn't work like that. You have to start thinking about gainful employment, mm-hmm. education, family integration, and all these other things that would you know do uh, uh, well for the community. Once the patient, because if the patient discharges and they are going to the same environment, right, you're going to have relapse thing. exactly. So, so on that, um, because I think people who are disconnected with this world of drug and substance abuse, mm-hmm. behavioral health, um, they will see television and see what a drug addict looks like on television, but they won't see their coworker that could be a drug addict. What percentage would you say of people you deal with are the functional drug addicts, so to speak, that are maybe going to work every day but have this abuse problem versus the person that is truly down and out and needs to be completely rehabbed from start to finish? Give or take, not, uh, at least let me just speak on my workforce, probably 10 to 15%. percent hmm that are actually functional, functional mm-hmm. in treatment, working beautifully, right. um, uh, and, and and then of course uh, uh, those are the they've they've kind of built 
recovery over time. Mm-hmm. And so they are able to, you know, come into treatment, get medicated with medication-assisted treatment, and still go back uh, to be able to do and execute the responsibilities of their jobs. And it hasn't been a problem, uh, once again. And then, of course, you know, comparatively, for those, as you mentioned, who are sort of down and out, all, all the people who are functioning now were down and out mm. once upon a time. Right. And so that's where, you know, of course, the live experience also comes in to be able to also help sort of those who are now coming up from that type of uh, uh, situation. So, yes, we have those who are functioning, who are uh, in recovery. Because recovery is a lifetime lifetime. thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, the triggers can come at any point. At any point. Anything can. Yeah, and, you know, if we have time, I have stories, even for some of our staff and what we've witnessed. So, yes, this is a beast. Yeah. And it, it cannot be toyed with. Yeah, it, it's, it's again. I've um, uh, you know sadly had a front row view to it, and yeah. people that don't understand it really don't understand it, and the triggers that can push people back, and then the fight. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, I mean, TJ, a lot of us went to school for this, mm-hmm. but your education is not going to do this. Right. It needs compassion. It needs kindness, love. A lot of components that are not taught in school right. is needed. If this is not a passion, I always tell people. A passion is anything you're willing to die for. Mm-hmm. That is why it was called the passion of the Christ. Mm. Christ was willing to die. Now, in our world, you know, if it's a passion, we do it, we find a way to get paid. Mm-hmm. If you do it right, the rewards will come later or it will follow. And so this is a passion. And if in this field, if you don't have that passion, you can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 and it's hard work because, yes. um, like, again, going backwards, relapse is part of recovery. Yeah. So it's not an instant gratification yep. thing. You know, um, now, now, with this, of course, the opioid crisis uh, that we've all been experiencing, uh, you know, I'll, I tend to shy away from this big opioid crisis. It's, it's a newer phrase in the past 10 years or so, 15 years, but it's been an existing issue oh, in Baltimore course. for many years. Uh, but we've seen it grow mm-hmm. um, beyond the, the, the community that it's been embedded yeah. in for yeah. a while, and now it's a opioid crisis. But with the onset of COVID as well, um, what have you seen over this past few years? Has it been a dramatic increase in treating opioids in particular um, since this COVID? How has the pandemic uh, yeah, in the last uh, so COVID started 2020, latter parts of 2019, 2020? It did increase. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not just in the opioid side, suicide, mm-hmm. mental health. It, 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 COVID has really changed the trajectory of treatment to the degree that you have to account for it. You know, right. when you are planning out uh, 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 how you want to sort of build capacity, how you want to approach treatment, because, uh, uh, you know, about a lot, of the, a lot of the staff that we had, including myself, all contracted COVID. One of the things that um, I was I'm very excited, or I was very excited about, the staff knew, you know, I served in the military. The probability you get killed is high because you're serving in the military. Mm-hmm. You're going to war. And when you go to war, you may get shrapnel. And so a lot of the staff came in, rolled up their sleeves, because that was our job. We were supposed to treat patients who came in with COVID, and we ourselves got COVID. Mm-hmm. And so it increased dramatically. Uh, the patients we saw, 
Uh, the challenges, did we have the space to be able to address the challenges? Do we have the funding to be? But those were all secondary issues that we had to deal with. Primarily, we had to deal with the patient. And we saw not just opioid-related issues, suicides, mental health went up. And, and one of the biggest things we saw was, on average, back in the day, on average, two, three years ago, on average, the patients that were coming were about 45 and up. Oh, the age drop. Dropped. Wow. We're seeing a lot of teens out of let, on the late, between 18 and 25. And what was their um, substance of choice? Opioid. Opioid. Opioid, K2, mm. I mean, you name it. Wow. Wow. Mm. Now, and speaking of that, uh, just anecdotally, um, and this is a complete assumption on my part, mm-hmm. have you found it easier to address uh, 18 to 25 year old versus a 45 year old or is it tougher nope. it's tougher they present different sets of mm. challenges um, uh, uh, you know because a lot of the, uh, the younger ones we are seeing you got to go back home mm. whoever the uh, the providers in this case us you have to kind of dig in to figure out what's happening and what's causing what and usually that is what we are seeing and the challenges are a little different from the uh, adult population that we see, uh, most of the adult population, you know, already have children. Of course, they've not been engaged in their lives, so you see the cycle keeps repeating. But the young ones, the same thing. There's nobody at home. They have to. They've given been given the responsibilities, whether they've been given on or life is just presented to them. And quote unquote, they have to make moves. Mm-hmm. And one of the key challenges we found was a lot of these substances are laced. Yes, that and fentanyl. They don't know. Yeah, they don't know. Now, do y'all do any? Um, because fentanyl is deadly. I deadly. mean, deadly, deadly, deadly. Do you do any sort of scared straight, for lack of better words, with something as deadly as fentanyl no. to let them know how? That no, we haven't. We haven't. We haven't. We haven't done that at Turk House. Mm-hmm. Once again, we are trying to incrementally move into certain spaces as we grow as an organization right. and and really one of the things I I'll probably not even subscribe to the scarce street model because mm-hmm. I'm a we're a treatment facility but I'm also we need to start presenting to young people and empowerment okay this is what you've known all your life but there's a new a different world out there that you can thrive be happy be able to build a family or whatever it is that you want to you want to do. I don't think from the pulpit on way down this is being said, especially in our black community. We really need to get into a position where we are empowering our young men and women. You can do X, Y, Z, and the system can pull you down. And if the system comes in the way, you bulldoze your way through. Because, like I told you, I've been homeless twice, as and I'm I'm an, I'm an immigrant. And so usually when I see, you know, especially my brothers and sisters in the African-American community, my goal is empowerment. Mm-hmm. I can't worry about who has done me. My goal is empowerment. And I want to empower them that there's another world out there where, you know, if you work a little harder, if you get the support that you need, you can thrive. You can succeed to the degree that you don't have to deal with, you know, using something else to numb, uh, you know, the pain and some of the challenges that you're having to go through, which I went through. Unfortunately, there was nobody to uh, help me out that way. Thank God I didn't have to use. I, my addictions were different. 
Right. Let's just say right. that many of us have addictions. Right. It's just not substance use. Right. <laughs> so. Very true. Very, very true. And 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 that it goes back to the legal versus right. illegal right. and the public perception right. Right. of these right. things. Uh, you know. So. Uh, well, we have to brag on you guys at the Turk House a bit uh, because in 2021, Newsweek named Turk House America's Best Addiction and Treatment Center. Um, what makes Turk House's approach to drug and alcohol treatment unique? Well, let me let me break news right here. Uh -oh. Yesterday, so that was 2021. 2021, 2021. yes. And so we were, I think, number five in the state of Maryland mm -hmm. uh, behind a few of the... Uh, known quantities so yesterday i just got a, another uh, email from newsweek that we we we, we we're on the list again but we wow. moved up one spot so how now, about it so Tell now we are number four that uh, is fantastic my goal is to get to number one yes in any case uh tj uh you know one of the things we changed our model i believe I've been at uh, Turk House since 2011 um, as the clinical director, of course. When I came in, it was an abstinence-based model. Mm -hmm. Stop using, don't pick up. Mm -hmm. That was the model. And, of course, I uh, gradually worked with the team to sort of transition us into the harm reduction piece. So that was another step. So we were able to achieve that. And then, of course, when I came into the helm in this position, uh, then we were looking at comprehensively what we can do with our patients to the degree that they can sustain uh, recovery. And so one of the things we, uh, together with my staff, we embarked on is making sure that uh, we are a one-stop shop for treatment because a lot of the challenges with the city transportation That's is a right. challenge. Mm -hmm. So a few other things that we looked at to see, once again, our model is what can we do to help? And so we figured, well, and that is where we entered into sort of the mental health space, the somatic health space, and, and in trying to treat holistically the patient. And so that is what we've done in the last few years to be able to address comprehensively and holistically uh, the patients that we see. And so Chuck House is a one-stop shop. Yeah. Well, Ed, congratulations and, and, and excellent. Keep up the great work. I want to I branch off of um, what you said uh, 2011, stop using. <laughs> Harm reduction is more the model now. One of the things that we're seeing in certain cities across America, and I think the conversation has started in Baltimore, is the concept of safe injection sites. I'm curious as your thoughts on that, because I, I, I get the concept of trying to reduce the you know, overdoses. But let me just say this. I'm a pastor. Mm -hmm. That's number one. That's my passion. Number two. So I'm not going to mention anything, but I'll just give you some background. So about years, some probably four or five years ago, I was invited to a panel. I'm not going to say you know names, uh, but it was, it was that discussion, uh, TJ, just as you put it. And so I learned through this panel that, um, you know, that thought process was being the sort of considered to bring to Baltimore. I'm wholeheartedly against it. Mm. Let me just tell you why. Number one, I'm in this for treatment, prevention, education. I will never, and let me repeat it, I'll never be part of 
telling someone, yes, safe sites. Because essentially, from a pastoral standpoint, you are calling yourself God. Because if you inject, you come to a place, you inject yourself, and of course, God forbid, you have an overdose. Of course, safe sites have nurses, and they can use Narcan to revive you. That's a godly standpoint that I don't want to take. Mm. Number two, one of the things that I actually left that meeting, because I had to tell them, why is it always okay to put stuff like this in our backyard? Mm. You can send this. You can take this to Montgomery County. You can, you can do it. Why is it okay to always put stuff like this in our backyard? And so this is, for me, is a philosoph- philosophical difference for me. There's a lane, you know, that I think God has me on as far as our organization. That's the lane I want to stick to. I'm not, you know, they want to do that. That's fine. I just will not be a part right. of it. That's, and that's just, just a philosophy thing that yeah. I don't foresee myself. It's like, well, let me inject myself with X, Y, Z. And, of course, you will always find research to back things up. But in this arena, I don't think I would want to be a part of it, at least as long as I'm at Turk House. Now, if yeah. the board decides to go a different route, then that's fine. But I think with the work we've done over the years, we are in the health uh, we are in the healing business. We are in the saving business, and 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 I don't think that is a, a good recipe for, right. for treatment. No, so no, no. I appreciate your yeah. candor, and um, I'm I, I haven't been someone who's been a proponent of it either. Um, you know, it's it's I, I, the concept I understand, but then the boots on the ground who are trying to save the lives yeah. and. Yeah. remove people from the dependency don't want so, to so, so I mean TJ think about it if, if this is a disease right. and it is mm-hmm. okay so let's look at other diseases mm-hmm. something is not squaring up here now you got high blood pressure we're not going right, to let you right, go to the right, chicken right, shack and right, eat fried right, chicken right, <laughs> safely right. so that's the point <laughs> right. so it, I mean sometimes we just need to pull back I understand some of the innovative ideas in doing things right. but we need to pull back and say oh okay yeah. Does what this make doing? sense? Exactly. Right, what right. are we doing? Right. Yeah. And yeah, it probably probably some better ways to yes. think about how yes. to get people off. Yes. So, um, man, that's uh, good stuff. And I appreciate it, man. But um, so uh, you offer many different services for people at every stage of their recovery journeys. And in 2018, you guys partnered with the Maryland Department of Health, the Baltimore City Department of Health, the Fire Department, the Behavioral Health System of Baltimore on a pilot program to open the Maryland Crisis Stabilization Center. Can you tell me how that works? So, no. So once again, uh, 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 kudos to, to the state. Uh, especially, uh, you know, Baltimore City uh, Health Department, Baltimore City Fire Department, Behavioral Health Systems, Baltimore, who really saw, once again, they saw a problem and they jumped on it. Uh, They found out that, um, you know, a lot of patients were presenting at the emergency department and overloading the emergency department uh, with substance-related, you know, um, um, uh, issues. And so, you know, together, you know, together with the state, uh, I think you know the you know the um, the mayor's office at that time, um, you know the fire department, you know uh, they came together to figure out um, other states were doing this type of thing, and so they looked at it and they you know they said, well, we need to also be able to do certain things to help our city, and that's what they did. And so of course a bid was put out for programs that could 
help run that type of program. And then, of course, Tech House won the bid. Uh, and since 2018, we've been doing this, uh, helping to, once again, alleviate the burdens on the healthcare system. Uh, and I think the state is actually working on a bigger, uh, another big initiative uh, for crisis centers across the state. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what the Maryland Crisis Stabilization Center is. It allows patients either to be brought by the fire department or they walk in themselves uh, and it's a it's and it is a 48 hour crisis stabilization and sobering center that allows patients number one to sober up to be seen by nurse practitioners therapists case managers peer support uh, specialists and rns to be able to get stabilized get a hot meal shower and then get triaged to either long-term, short-term, home, whatever the patient wants to do. But it's a patient-centered approach to a treatment model that was introduced by state the state. I mean, this is huge, and I I don't know why we don't hear more about this. And I hear pilot program. um, It's four years now, so I I don't know whether it's still a pilot, but anyway. Hopefully, (laughs) and and speaking of pilot programs, I was with the – BPD at the time is the chief spokesperson mm. working with behavior, Baltimore Behavioral Health as uh, well, and they do some fantastic do. work. And one of the things that the commissioner at the time pulled together uh, based on a program out of Seattle was LEAD, Law Enforcement Assisted yes. Diversion, right, which right, seems right. to have been in a forever pilot. I mean, yeah. they've flown around the world by right. now 20 times, this pilot program. But um, I don't see the police department, and I know every stakeholder can't be listed on this, but what are your thoughts on LEAD? Because um, it sounds similar where that low-level uh, drug uh, user, uh, that capsule of heroin or what have you, is taken to treatment as opposed to taken to jail. What are your thoughts on that? No, no, I think it was a, it was a great, uh, I don't know whether it's still functioning, I hope it is, but great program. Uh, when the Maryland Crisis Stabilization Center started, there was a focus Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, LEAD was also doing its own thing, but there was a focus uh, for, you know, not trying to stigmatize patients with, to your point, uh, if a patient is using the patient is sick, it's a disease. And so there was a focus there. And once again, it started off as a pilot to the degree that they wanted to see how it was going to work. And so that was the focus initially. Mm-hmm. LEAD was also doing what it was doing. And I think now, four years in, uh, right now, things are open to the degree that patients are coming in to receive pay- uh, treatment from whatever uh, 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 places they come from. So that that has that it has been a sort of a synergistic relationship to be able to offer patients much needed services. Well, we're gonna we're gonna need to follow up on that. We're gonna have to talk to the next governor um, as the administration changes to ensure this is followed up on because this is a huge part of the whole criminal justice world. As as we look to decriminalize more, and that's a question I also want to ask if you've seen, and I don't know if it's any way to really quantify it with so much that has happened with right. COVID and everything else. Has decriminalization played a role in any sort of uptick in overdoses or uptick in in users or abusers or what have you? Uh, because some people do think that decriminalization is going to make more people use drugs. Have you seen that at all? No, no. I think I think that the challenge with many people is you don't you have to separate the disease mm-hmm. from recreation, recreation from even. 
the dealer. Mm-hmm. So you have to look at treatment prevention. I mean, I think I don't think that it's the case. I haven't seen the num. I've seen the numbers on it, but I don't think decriminalization of the of 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 substance use because usually the target is the use, mm-hmm. the disease, the one who is struggling with that. That's mm-hmm. who the target is in uh, and decriminalizing or uh, 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 this uh, particular issue and. People were getting put in jail for, right, right. And so and, 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 that is yeah. not gonna is going to be a perpetual sort of door if that 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 sort of change was not introduced into our psyche. Mm-hmm. And so for us, I mean, for me, I mean, looking at the research that I've looked, I haven't seen uh, uh, that aspect. And I think there ought to be a separation with those who are dealing, peddling, and and those who are sick. That, that, I yeah. totally and so agree. the enforcement has to be separated from mm-hmm. prevention, use, and and, and, and right. treatment. Yeah, yeah we, that, our focus should be on the illegal dealers, yes. not the yes. people who are sick. Exactly. I totally agree with that. Um, so there are going to be people listening, and it's probably the age-old thing, trying to find a bed, residential yeah. uh, intake, and you all support that. You yep. all have that. Uh, talk to me more about your residential services. So we, we our residential services are broken up into several levels of care. And so you have your first, you have your inpatient treatment facilities. Currently, Turk House, I think, in Baltimore, I think we are probably the largest. We have about 92 beds of inpatient withdrawal management bed capacity that would allows for patients to uh, receive uh, treatment whenever they, they they come. And so we have, of course, for men and women, we do co-ed where we, we have physicians, nurse practitioners, psychiatric nurse practitioners, RNs, therapists, and all, and the host of uh, other patient, I mean, staff members to be able to help patients out. And so we do have that. And then we do have, of course, partial hospitalization. We do have our urgent care, crisis stabilization center, long-term treatment facility where patients who come in our inpatient um, treatment facilities can transition or triage into long-term six months or more where whilst there they can be they can be working on uh, the GED. They can be going to college, be working on becoming gainfully employed. You know, we do offer sometimes uh, training and teaching on becoming a peer recovery specialist so that you can be a peer helping other people that are coming behind you. And so we have the whole sort of continuum of care to be able to. And then, of course, we also have a parent company, Total Health Care, where if there are somatic issues, uh, we can also refer there for patients to be able to continue on their journey whilst their substance use treatment is not interrupted. Which goes right back to trying to fill that void of those triggers. Yes, the wraparound services that yeah. is much needed for, yeah. for patients to be successful. Super important. Um, and uh, another thing, kind of touched on it a bit, um, and oh, I think that you touched on it a bit, the opening of the Andre Kennedy Center for Integrated Behavioral Health and Urgent Care. Um, talk to me about that and why that's important to be a part of the Turk House. Right, so let me, uh, I, I want to share a story on that because okay. there's a name on that program. Yes, Andre please. Kennedy. All right. So in 2011, I become, I become the clinical director mm-hmm. of Turk House. And so my first day on the job, he, and Mr. Andrew Kennedy was a patient. Okay. Cursed me out, mm. did all manner of, called me all manner of names. My African names, everything. <laughs> so a lot of the staff, they were looking for my reaction. Of course, I maintained my, my cool. And, and of course, he ended up coming to apologize the next day. 
went through our program, uh, became one of the best people I've ever met. Went through our program, sustained recovery. Actually, at one point, worked for uh, Behavioral Health Systems Baltimore, then came back and worked for Turk Houses Crisis, Maryland Crisis Stabilization Center. Mm-hmm. This guy was the hardest worker I've ever met. Not only that, he was able to purchase a home. I mean, he, he was just the poster child for success. And, you know, you know, unfortunately, he died doing the things that he loved, which was helping people. Mm. And I believe on the day he died, he had left Turk House that morning, worked another shift, I believe, as, including his shift, went home, took his shoes off, sit, sat on the couch. Wow. Passed away. And so when the urgent care came about, once again, the urgent care was in answer to what I think I had mentioned before about comprehensive health care, the community. Uh, if you look within the, the, the 21216 zip code, in a span of three or four miles, there was no urgent care in sight. Transportation is a problem. And so once again, we wanted to address a need. And so we said, well, why don't we add an urgent care to be able to help the community we have an urgent care with the x-ray. We're getting ready to bring pharmacy on by the end of the year so that that will also help our community. And so after we did all of that together with the board, there was no other name to be able to put on the urgent mm. care. But wow, how admirable So we talked that? to his family and they said yes. Mm-hmm. So we honored him that way. No, no more appropriate name than Andre yes. Kennedy. And as we talked about it, I said in my intro, and you and I talked about before we started recording how all of this stuff is tied together. You mentioned the 21216 zip code. Uh, Marvin Doc Cheatham does some fantastic work down in the Matthew Henson community, mm-hmm. and food work is yes. one of his biggest works, and the food desert situation. Yes. And it's a food desert. Yeah. And, and But you mentioned also the, the lack of urgent care and opportunities to get treatment, health uh, care, yep. and all of these things tie together. It does. And you look at where these voids are in the communities, and you look at some of the problems that exist yeah. in those same communities yeah. that we complain about. Yeah. Yeah. So it all ties together. I mean, together. to your point on the, on the food desert, so by the end of the year, we would have finished building our state-of-the-art kitchen mm. and dining area. The goal is to become a hub for the community for food for the food so that we can work with uh, the Maryland Food Bank mm-hmm. to have to be a, a hub, drop off number, and then we'll be able to distribute to the community. I think in the, when COVID hit, mm-hmm. we were going around, my team, marketing and outreach team, we're going around feeding, because a lot of people that live around us are elderly folks. Mm-hmm. And so we're walking around giving food and all of that. Um, and so... You know, this is what we are here to do. Yeah, and we we had Doc on the show as well um, uh, about a year ago, actually, and um, he he appreciated um, some of the government giving some boxes of vegetables, but he said these folks ain't vegetarians, <laughs> and and to the point, it was like. You're like just telling them to be vegetarians all of a sudden, and that's not helping right. matters. And it's the truth. But appreciate what you're doing, trying to fill a void as a nonprofit. When you know, I, I just look at it from again this whole America standpoint that we have to fill these voids. But that's a whole another conversation. I know, I know. So I have to ask: Are we making progress on the opioid crisis? I think. 
That's a loaded question. <laughs> it is. I think from a treatment standpoint, I think we are. Mm-hmm. But from a governmental standpoint, I think th- there could be some challenges there. So, you know, and, you know, my hope is that, you know. So you look at, we have fentanyl still being poured through the borders. And so you have a porous border that allows for this to happen. And so, of course, I, I'm quite sure you are aware, last year or the year before, there was, for the first time in the history of the United States, over 100,000 people over died due to overdose. Recently, I think two months ago, about a month ago in California, they busted two guys with fentanyl that could kill, I believe, don't quote me on this, about five million people. They let them go and told them to show up in court, of course, they didn't show up. And so I think from the treatment standpoint, we are doing the best we can, especially from the nonprofit side. We do need some funding though uh, uh, real in this space because a lot of not just Turk House, a lot of other programs are doing some phenomenal work. But in the nonprofit space, sometimes it's not even sometimes, it's a challenge really trying to compete with a lot of these for profit who are backed by venture capitalists and all of that. We don't have that type of pockets. Right. And so we are at the mercy of either Medicaid or the government to be able to help us to be able to do really uh, the work that is needed to be able to help people. And so I think, I think we are making inroads, uh, but if you are making inroads and the problem still is what it is, I think this is where you know, you know, our governmental types and our stakeholders need to really take a good look. Uh, but I can only worry about what we can worry about, what we can control, which is taking care of the patient. And the other things will shake out the way they shake out. Right, right. So, you know, as we come to a conclusion here, I know... Um, you guys are working on some major renovations at your main campus. Right. Uh, what type of improvements are you doing there? So uh, we we uh, th- that building, the main campus, was a was an old Lutheran hospital. And where is that? For seven thirty seven thirty Ashburton uh, Street, which mm-hmm. is for the main campus, and then we have twenty seven hundred Rayner Avenue for the Maryland Crisis Stabilization Center. And so, of course, that building was dilapidated, run down, and of course, the state, together with the state and the foundation community, we are, we are embarking on this $10.2 million project to completely refurbish uh, and make it. One of the things I always, I, you know, I always tell patients, uh, back in the day when I used to be able to actually, because I'm a therapist at heart, and so usually I used to be able to do groups and individual sessions uh, with patients, I, you look at the building, I'm like, that they tell you this is what you're worth because mm. the building was mm. beat down. Wow, that, that's yeah. what we had. We had to make do with what we had, and so thank God the state came along. Thank God foundations came along. Thank God for the Turk House board who also came out of our operational budget to try to refurbish this. And so now by the end of the year, that whole building would have been refurbished to allow for 92 beds, mm. uh, to allow for of course the state of the art kitchen dining area. We've just brought on the urgent care. By the end of the year, we'll be bringing on pharmacy, x-ray. Wow. Uh, and so it will be a completely different. Um, uh, and then, of course, we'll be able to refurbish the exterior, exteriors of the building. And so that, that, that is what we are embarking on. And that is not even the end of it. We are looking to get into other spaces to be able to make sure we treat uh, patients in other jurisdictions. That's the goal now. So if some venture capitalist uh, was listening to this podcast and said, man, I want to invest oh, some of my it. money, um, and they want to invest uh, some new 
venture capitalist had a bunch of money and they don't know what to do with it and they want to invest in you what's your wish list look like what what would you want to do with uh, another large donation but I know you can take the small ones as well oh I'll take we'll with. take the small we'll take the large ones there's so much you uh, want to be able to do one of the things we want to really get into is what we call social enterprising okay and uh, I hope nobody steals this out you know steals this from us but looking at a lot of the, if you, you know, you look in the city, a lot of the buildings that are run down, mm-hmm. our goal, be able to purchase those houses, refurbish them, and, and, and sell it, uh, not at a profit, to families that are in recovery, who, are com- who have come out, gainfully employed, doing well, and be able to just give it to families like that, who mm-hmm. have one or two people struggling with a disease of addiction, who are now in recovery, who are now gainfully employed, are now you know, um, are, are doing well in, in, in their lives. And then not only that, also looking at the workforce development piece, which is we are currently working with BCCC to really bring in whether it's CPR training, whether it's PS support special, whether it's CNA training, whether it's RN, LPN training. We want to look at all of that so that we are making impact and inroads in this field. But org is our donation. You go there, it's our donation tab. Uh, we, we welcome, you know, and of course, if you have to reach out to us, you can reach out 410-233-0684. You can request for me if it's a bigger check. I like to receive big checks. Yes. I like to take pictures with that with my team. But, but yeah, small Love donations, large donations. And, 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 and the foundation community has been a great help, and I must say that. Excellent. And TurkHouse.org, that's T-U-E-R-K house.org turkhouse.org um, that's that's fantastic I mean the work you're doing and the team is doing is invaluable yes. and you guys are behind the scenes Pe- people yeah. we don't talk about you, you we don't see you yep. as the top story on the news yep. every day oh. and you're behind the scenes you're bringing families which is fine for us yeah, yeah. It, we know We're unsung heroes <laughs> You're bringing families back together, pulling them back together that have been disrupted by this uh, nasty disease of addiction. Um, in many ways, it, it disrupts families uh, like no other. And yep. for people who've never experienced it, you probably should stay silent and learn more <laughs> before you criticize it, honestly, because you just don't know. You yeah, don't yeah. understand how difficult yeah, a lot it is. Of dynamics. Lots of dynamics. But uh, I, I tell you, this has been an insightful conversation. Um, we are blessed to have you in Baltimore. Well, I, I think the blessing should go to the staff. Absolutely. The, uh, staff, they are the ones who are doing a phenomenal job. I'm, I, just haven't, I just happen to be a figurehead, that's all. Yeah. They are the ones doing the job, and they are the true mm-hmm. unsung heroes of, 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 of Baltimore Absolutely. City. And all of you worked through COVID with a higher-risk yep. population, which, again, the unsung heroes of COVID and of yep. snowstorms yep. and of everything else yep. that people stay in their house for, they're out there. You don't the have the opportunity lines. to do Zoom. That's we have right. to be there. That's right. That yep. is absolutely right. So thank you very much, Mr. Well, Bernard J.B. Foster, the executive director of Turk House. He said it already, but I'm going to say it again. It's turkhouse.org, T-U-E-R-K, house.org. The phone number is 410-233-0684. This is To Be More Podcast. I'm T.J. Smith. Thank you very much for joining us again. We all have to do our part. 
to be more. And I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. You can find it where the podcasts are located. Make sure you share it. We know a lot of people are struggling right now, but let's all do our part and uh, get it to who it needs to get to so we can all be better. So thank you very much for tuning in. See you next time.